Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Bless us and build us up in our faith as we study your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in our risen Lord Jesus, people in the ancient world were superstitious and gullible. Without the modern technology and scientific knowledge that we have, they were quick to blame anything they didn't understand on gods and spirits and miracles. I mean, if you could go back in time and show somebody your iPhone, they would probably just fall down on the ground and start worshiping you like you're a god. And so for this reason, anytime we hear something from the ancient world about gods and spirits and miracles, we need to take it with a heavy grain of salt. Do you think that's true? A lot of people really think that this is true. There, there's even a name for this line of thinking. There's different names for it. But one of them, maybe not the most positive sounding term, chronological snobbery. The guy who uh, coined this was, was C.S. Lewis, and he's referring to himself and the way that he thought when he was an atheist before he became a Christian. But chronological snobbery basically is this. It's the assumption that because science and technology have advanced in the modern age, then that means people must also have advanced in the modern age. And that means compared to people from earlier times, we're just way smarter. We're way wiser. We're way kinder. We are just better than our silly, superstitious, ancient world counterparts. A lot of people think this. I think they're wrong. Um, I wish I had much more time to devote to this particular topic this morning. I don't. This is just the sermon introduction, so it's very short. But think this through with me. You might have the whole internet in your pocket, which allows you to delve into a little bit of information on almost any topic in the world. But scholars from the ancient world read through hundreds and thousands of books and scrolls in multiple languages, and where did they store all that information? They stored it in their own head. They didn't have to go look it up because they had built a wealth of knowledge in their minds. Secondly, you can look up just about anything online, and you maybe can focus on it for about five minutes until you get a text that distracts you. But scholars in the ancient world spent hours each day concentrating deep in thought without any interruptions. Bottom line, if you or I could hop into a time machine, and if we could transport ourselves to, say, Athens 2,500 years ago, so that we could maybe discuss the meaning of life with one of the Greek philosophers, I think we might be surprised at how totally outmatched we are, both by the cohesiveness of their arguments and the depth of their thought. Ancient people were not simple-minded fools just because they don't have our technology. They also were not necessarily more superstitious. If a modern-day person, so let's just kind of construct the typical modern-day person, pretty intellectual, pretty rationally based, we want scientific explanations for things. If a modern-day person like this was to go back in the ancient world to the period called classical antiquity, 800 BC up to 500 AD, this is like the whole era of the Greeks and then the Romans. If a modern person could go back to that era, somebody who's science-based and rational thinking, they would find all sorts of kindred spirits. If a person went back to that era who's very skeptical of the supernatural, skeptical of miracles, 
they would find all kinds of kindred spirits. Like Greek philosophers who spent all day long proposing logical explanations for how the universe works. Like Jewish teachers such as the Sadducees. Remember that whole group called the Sadducees? This was a group within the Jewish teachers that didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a supernatural world. They didn't believe in spirits of any sort. There would be kindred spirits from back in this era like Jesus' disciple Thomas, right? Who refused to believe that Jesus was alive until he had proof with his own eyes and even with his own hands. And even there would be kindred spirits in the ancient world like members of the church in Corinth. There were members of the church in Corinth who, even though they believed in Jesus and his resurrection, their faith was deeply challenged by the skeptical world around them, a world that questioned miracles and that wanted a scientific explanation for everything. Now, does that sound familiar? Being challenged in your faith? by a skeptical world that questions miracles and wants a scientific explanation for everything? I think it sounds quite familiar. So our culture is not nearly as different from ancient Greek and Roman culture as we might think that it is. In fact, you guys know this, modern Western society is really based off of Greek and Roman thought. So there are tons of connections, tons of commonalities between us and our world and way of thinking and the world and the way of thinking of ancient times. So, we turn now to 1 Corinthians 15, known as the Great Resurrection Chapter of the Bible. Last week, we started this sermon series with the first 11 verses, and what happened in those verses, in case you missed it, was that Paul wrote to people very much like us, coming from an intellectual culture, wanting rational explanations for things, and Paul explained, intellectually and rationally, that there is no doubt Jesus rose from the dead. There is a massive amount of compelling evidence, and there were a ton of eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses at the time of Paul's writing, who were still living, who had seen Jesus after he rose from the dead, including Paul himself. And the Corinthians believed it. We heard this last week as Paul started the opening verses of this very important chapter. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, and on which You've taken your stand. So even in an intellectual, rational, evidence-based world, the Corinthian Christians believed in Jesus' resurrection. That's because their faith was not based on blind superstition. It was based on a fact. Jesus had risen from the dead, and then he went and appeared to a bunch of people over and over again. And yet, despite their strong faith in Jesus' resurrection, the Corinthian Christians struggled at times to believe other teachings of the Bible, teachings which could not be so easily proven because they hadn't happened yet, teachings like our resurrection to come at the end of the world. That's where Paul jumps in in the section for today. He says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's going to be no resurrection from the dead? <coughs> Sadducees, uh, but lots of people at this time, and Corinthian Christians. How could you say this? If you Corinthian Christians believe in Jesus' resurrection, how could you not believe in yours? Remember what Jesus said. He said, because I live, you also will live. He tied our resurrections together. 
So this means either God has the power to raise all of us, or God has the power to raise none of us. Either the Christian has total victory over death, or the Christian has no victory over death. But there's no middle option where the Christian sort of has victory over death. Either Christ rose and we are going to, or he didn't, and we won't. So, Paul says in these verses, let's play the game. What if? What if he didn't rise? What if Jesus didn't rise on Easter, and what if we're not going to rise on the last day? Well, if that's the case, we've got some serious problems. If Christ has not been raised, first of all, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I mean, what a waste of time for a pastor to spend his entire life trying to tell people about God and eternal life if, when you die, it's just the end of it. What a waste of time for a Christian to spend all these hours like, like praying and studying the Bible and trying to connect with God and think about eternal life if, when you die, it's just the end of it. What a waste. More than that, if Christ has not been raised, we are found to be false witnesses about God. This is something that we read at the beginning of many of our worship services. We say people from every nation, tribe, and language are looking for the truth about God. People just want truth. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're lying. Furthermore, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Because what about sins? What about guilt? What about shame? What about things that we have done in the past that we felt so bad about and then we have found comfort and peace in the knowledge that it's been washed away? That God forgives us, that we have a pure heart and a clean start, that we are forgiven. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're not forgiven. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we don't have God's stamp of approval on Jesus' work on the cross. We're still in our sins. And if there's going to be punishment for our sins, we're going to have to deal with it. Finally, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Our beloved, believing loved ones who have passed on and gone before us, and we take so much encouragement from knowing that they're safe with God in heaven. Well, if Christ has not been raised, then they're not. They're just gone. Gone forever, and we will never see them again. Paul sums it all up with a very devastating phrase. He says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are wasting our time. If Christ has not been raised. It's a pretty depressing hypothetical situation. But the reason Paul brings it up is to demonstrate to the Corinthian Christians that they're not being consistent. Either there is such a thing as resurrection from the dead, or there is not. If there is, then Jesus was raised, and we're going to be raised, and as children of God, we will have everything. If there's not, as gullible fools, we have nothing. But there's no middle option, where only Jesus was raised, but we're not going to be. There's no halfway hope. At least there shouldn't be. And yet, the Corinthian Christians found themselves living in a place of halfway hope, it seems like a lot of the time. 
And sadly, we find ourselves living in a place of halfway hope. This seems like a lot of the time. So what does this look like? A place of halfway hope. I thought we could kind of divide it into two sections. Halfway faith and then halfway living. So let's start with halfway faith. Halfway faith looks like this. By God's grace, we believe that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a proven part of history, too. Our faith is not based on blind superstition like the Corinthians. It's based on a historical fact. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, despite our belief in Jesus' resurrection, we struggle sometimes to believe other teachings of the Bible, teachings that cannot be so easily proven because they haven't happened yet. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but is God really active in my life? Yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but does God really know what is happening to me? Is God really using my life for good and for my good and for the good of his kingdom? Is God really listening to my prayers? Is God really steering me through life, even through my bad decisions? Sometimes it's hard to believe. So when we believe in Jesus' resurrection, maybe we, we believe that we're going to go to heaven someday, but we're not believing these things that Jesus can do for us right now. We're struggling with this halfway faith. And not surprisingly, it then leads to kind of this halfway life. And here, I think, is what a halfway life looks like. It's where, by God's grace, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. We know we're going to go to heaven someday. We believe these things are true. But we live as though they're not. Right? And so, really, if we want to pick a spirit animal, um, we're kind of like chameleons. What does a chameleon do? Changes color to blend in with whatever is around, us, around it. And we, like spiritual chameleons, change and blend in with whatever is around us. So, other people are ignoring anything spiritual and eternal, and they're focusing on life in this world like it's all they have. That's what we do. Other people dive into sinful pleasures as though the sole purpose of existence is to do whatever feels good. And so, that's what we do. Other people around us hate and bully anyone who doesn't agree with their particular social agenda. So, that's what we do. Other people around us are so self-centered that they would never really inconvenience themselves for the sake of someone else. So, that's what we do. And it's a halfway life. We believe in Jesus. We know he took our sins away. We trust we're going to heaven someday, but we're living along with the rest of the world as though it didn't happen, as though this life is all we have. And in, this, in these verses, Paul calls time out, and he says, what are you doing? We know what happened to Jesus. We talked about it in great detail last week. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. But we also should then know what this means for our future. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep and who will fall asleep. His resurrection points ahead to our resurrection. Because he lives, we also will live even after we die. First, our souls will live spiritually with God in heaven, and then our bodies physically will be raised one day to the new heaven and new earth that God is going to create for all of his children. And with this knowledge of what's coming then, there should be a massive impact 
on our life right now? And there can be. And there is. Because Jesus lives, and so one day will we, our preaching is not useless, nor is your faith. What could be more useful than spending your life as a Christian trying to connect with that God who's going to bring you to eternal life in heaven and encouraging other people to do the same? Because Jesus lives, and one day so will we, we're not false witnesses about God. It's the opposite. We said we are in a world where people are looking for truth on a spiritual and eternal level, and we have the most comforting, encouraging truth that there could be, that God loves us, He died for us. Sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. Eternal life in God's kingdom is ours through faith in Jesus. Because Jesus lives, and so one day will we, we are not still in our sins. What God says about our sins is true. Your sins, in God's sight, are as far away from you as the east is from the west. Your sins are as far away from you as though God has plunged them into the depths of the sea. You're forgiven. You're free from sin and guilt and shame because Jesus lives, and one day so will you. Finally, because Jesus lives, and one day so will we, our loved ones who have died in the faith are not lost. Their souls are at peace with God in heaven, and their bodies are waiting to rise one day and join us to walk with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Because Jesus lives, and so one day will we, we are not of all people most to be, to be pitied. Rather, we are the most blessed people on earth. Because, unlike everybody else, we know where we're going when we die, and we know it's going to be good. And therefore, unlike everybody else, we know exactly what to do with our life here on earth. Let the light of God's gospel shine through us to others, one person at a time. We know these things. We believe these things. So Paul says, let's live these things. Let's live with full faith that if God raised one man from the dead 2,000 years ago, and if at some point in the future, maybe 2,000 years in the future, God is going to raise us from the dead, that means God has the power to take care of everything that happens in between those two points. God really is active in your life. Do you remember what Jesus promised? Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That is a promise for all of God's children. That is Jesus' promise to you. Yes, God really does listen to your prayers. Because the risen Lord Jesus stands at the right hand of God and is always interceding for you. And yes, God really does work all things, even the hardest things, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Because considering that he's already defeated sin and death for you, how is he not going to be able to handle every other problem that life could possibly throw at us? Because Jesus lives, and one day so will we. We can have full faith. And a full faith leads to a full life. Right? A life where we can say no to the shallow, sinful pleasures of this fading world. Because we have a much better world coming that we're looking forward to. A life where we can work to connect with people instead of dividing. 
Because we have a much greater goal than political agendas or social causes. We have a goal of connecting people to Christ's love one at a time so they can rise with us to eternal life in heaven one day. We can have a full life, a life where we would embrace opportunities to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of somebody else. Because in a small way, that's us getting to do for somebody what Christ did for us. In summary, what God is teaching us through his word this morning is that as a Christian, you don't have to settle for halfway anything. In our risen Savior Jesus, we've got it all. Full faith, full life, full confidence in our eternity, and full meaning and purpose for our life right now. And these are the blessings that come to us from a Savior who has indeed been raised from the dead and thus who is only the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep and all those who will occupy heaven with our Savior one day. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your risen Savior. Amen.